Well, as we've been building up to, this is one of the most amazing prophecies in the Bible. It is a word given to Ezekiel about the city of Tyre. The word will consist of several of them. And the details of this prophecy will will show you as we get through the, the details of it anyway, why it took such a spiritually mature prophet like Ezekiel in order to receive this word and deliver it. So, uh, chapter 1, there'll be three chapters that are dedicated to Tyre, four that are dedicated to Egypt. The greatest enemies of Israel at this time, beside Babylon, are Tyre and Egypt. And this is who the, these prophecies are aimed against. So, verse 1, And it came to pass in the eleventh year of the first day of the month that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, because Tyre has said against Jerusalem, Aha, she is broken, who who was the gateway of the peoples. Now she is turned over to me. I shall be filled. She is laid waste. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will cause many nations to come up against you as the sea causes its waves to come up. So this is the, the beginning part here where he just says, I'm against you. And the reason for it is the pride, which we saw in one of the uh, prophecies prior to this. But they're in the same boat. They have a, a pride. They're looking upon Israel and they're seeing the judgment that comes upon them. And they're saying, aha, you guys got it. We've been able to withstand things like that over time. But you guys, uh, not so much. And so they kind of mock them. And God is not not happy about that. If anybody's going to mock his people, it's him. <laughs> he doesn't doesn't allow for other people to come in there and to and to do that. Now the location of Tyre is what is now called Lebanon. It is uh north northeast of Jerusalem and and uh, uh the land of Judah. Its main cities, and the main cities of Phoenicia here are, are Byblos, Sidon, and Tyre. Initially, Byblos was the more prominent of the cities. Around uh, 1100 BC is when it began to turn, and Tyre became the dominant city, and Byblos became uh, less than, than dominant. Around 1000 was the height of the influence and uh, greatness of Tyre. But it was a great city from about 1100, or the greatest of the Phoenician cities from about 1100 to about the uh, 700s, somewhere in in there. They had a good history with David and Solomon. Remember uh, David had uh, uh, requisitioned the cedars from the forests of Lebanon. And this was a treaty he made with the the king. And uh, things were good there. Now, things had gone good continually, or at least were on an even keel, up until Ahab. Ahab joined into a marriage uh, union with uh, one of the the daughters of the king. Everybody remember her name? Jezebel. She was from the city of Sidon. And so this was a Phoenician city. It was not from Tyre itself, but it was from that, that region. Now, um, 
The city means rock, and it's named for the island fortress that is there offshore. So the main city, the city on the mainland, actually became more of a suburb. The, uh, the rich and the influential, they live on the island. They live on the island city. Now Tyre left no literature, no statues, no monuments. There was nothing of any permanent value from them. She was known only as, uh, as other nations had written about her. She is known as a panderer to the vices of the nations around her. And basically, if you wanted it, Tyre would get it for you. Now, it was a very influential city. She had uh, great financial power. She had connections in all the courts of the lands. She was able to manipulate and influence the other nations. When she would fall, it would be a shock to all the nations because of the influence that this city had with all of them. Isaiah 23 and verse 8. Who has taken this counsel against Tyre, the crowning city? Or I have in, in a note on this, the bestower of crowns. Whose merchants are princes, whose traders are the honorable of the earth. Now there's a couple of places that deal with Tyre. But this particular uh, Ezekiel deals with it for three chapters. No one else deals with it as much. Uh, verse 3, Therefore thus says the Lord, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will cause many nations to come up against you, as the sea causes its waves to come up. So it relates it to a wave. And this is the title, this is a coastal city, so they can, of course, relate to, relate to that, to waves continually coming on in. So wave after wave after wave are nations gonna, that are going to come up against Tyre. And they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. And it shall be a place for spreading nets in the midst of the sea. For I have spoken, says the Lord God. It shall become plunder for the nations. Also her daughter villages, which are in the fields, shall be slain by the sword. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Now on these general predictions here, first off, many nations, they shall come up against you. The wall shall be destroyed and the walls of Tyre are known throughout the world as being some of the greatest walls and especially the walls that are on the uh, island city. The thing that made their, those walls so distinct and so difficult was that the walls went right up to the water's edge. So there was really no land to launch an attack against. You had to be in a boat and come up to the walls. Uh, it says that they would scrape her dust from her, make her like a top of a rock, a place for the spreading of nets. Decades ago, I read a book on this, uh, on the book of Ezekiel that dealt with this particular chapter. And I remember the, the thing that they had related this to when it says that it would become a place of spreading the nets. It said it's the same thing as if some, if a prophet came today and said that Manhattan would be, would be scraped clean and what would remain would only be a place for the spreading of fishermen's nets. He said that this city was so influential, it would be like the, an influential place like New York City to be nothing more than a place where fishermen would put their nets. He said it's unheard of. They could, they could never imagine that this city that had been around for thousands of years would suddenly become totally useless and gone. 
such as shall become the plunder for nations. And even in dollar villages, those that were around her would, uh, would be affected. Now he's going to get into some specifics here in verse 7. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses, with chariots, and with horsemen, an army with many people. Don't let that phrase, king of kings, throw you. When Babylon comes, they had conquered a number of other nations. And they brought some of those people and some of those armies from those other nations. So he is the king of all the kings that would be coming in this, uh, in this battle. But Nebuchadnezzar would be coming. He will slay with the sword your daughter villages in the fields. He will heap up a siege mount against you, build a wall against you, and raise a defense against you. He will direct his battering rams against your walls with his axes. He will break down your towers because of the abundance of his horses. Their dust will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen, the wagons, and the chariots when he enters your gates as men enter a city that has been breached. With the hooves of his horses, he will trample all your streets. He will slay your people by the sword and your strong pillars will fall to the ground. Now, the history of this siege, this is done by Babylon. Babylon, the siege lasted 13 years. It went from 586 until 573 B.C. Now, the Egyptians and the Assyrians sought control over Tyre because of its strategic importance as a port city. The Assyrians had launched, and I, I, I had this up, and then I, uh, I couldn't find them when I was grabbing some last-minute things. I believe they had four or five sieges, the, Assy, the Assyrians, against this city by themselves. The last one, at least the last one, was successful, and they did, uh, they did breach it. But they were eventually able to throw off the control of the Assyrians and establish their own independence before the Babylonians came back down um, about a hundred or so years later and, and fought them off. So they were independent state by the time the Babylonians had come on down. Uh, seven, there's a, there's a date for the last one day. 722 BC is, uh, when the Assyrians had conquered the, this part after about a five year siege. But all they were able to do was take the offshore portion. They were not able to take the island city. So Babylon comes down and after a 13 year siege, all they are able to gain is the, uh, is the, uh, mainland city. And they knock down the walls. They breach the walls. They knock down the walls and they destroy the city. And the destroy, the mainland city lays in ruins for the next couple hundred years. They don't, they don't try and rebuild it. They basically just stay with the, with the island city. And they let some villages and some things like that inhabit the area of the old city. But uh, they just left it there. They didn't try and rebuild it. They used it to get some wood and some fresh water and some things like that. But So it just fed in, into the main city, which was the, the city of Tyre. So the city of Tyre, whenever you hear that, it's the island city. It's not the, the, the mainland city. So Tyre paid tribute to Assyria. But after Assyria's power declined, Tyre rid themselves of that. And so they were, once again, on their own. Now, of this 13-year siege, I don't know how long it was this was set against the mainland city and how long it took for them to break that, that city down. But they eventually then turned their attention to the island city. And so part of this 13 years is to besiege the island city, for which they, they didn't have a, a huge navy. Nebuchadnezzar does not have a huge 
huge Navy uh, tire does. And this really uh, kind of offsets it there. So he's not able to gain too much of a foothold. They tried to establish some, some blockades there to kind of try and starve them out, but it didn't work out so well. And so after a while, they, uh, it's, it's not exactly known why they pulled off after 13 years. So there's some supposition here as to, as to what happened. Uh, one, that the, uh, the king of Tyre died during the siege and the Babylonians replaced him with his son Baal so that uh, he just set him up as a tribute king much like they did with Israel. Remember with the Israel they came in, they, they took out the Israeli king and they put the son in his place, made him a, you know, a tribute king but they still kept the, the kingship going. So it could have been something along like that. It doesn't seem to be, though, because there was really no record, record of, of foreigners coming in the, inside the, the city. Uh, one of the things that, that could have been done, and this is a later theory that was, that was uh, supported by an ancient list of foreign kings that were residing in Babylon, was that the, uh, they came to a truce, that they would stop the, whatever blockade they had going on, and they surrendered their king to the Babylonians, and then they put their own king in. The reason for that is that uh, when the king of King Jehoiakim is mentioned among the prisoners, at the top of the list is an unnamed king of Tyre. So it seems like somehow they got one of the king of Tyres in there. This may have been uh, why he was there, and what may have uh, brought the end of a thirteen-year, thirteen-year uh, siege. So at any rate, they uh, this this had gone on, and let me see if I if I read too too quickly. Let me go back to our verses here. Therefore, thus says oh, we need to go to verse seven. That's where we need to go. For thus says the Lord God: Behold, I will bring Tyre from the north, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses, with chariots, with horsemen, and army, many people. He will slay with the sword your daughter villages in the fields. He will heap up a siege mount against you, build a wall against you, and raise a defense against you. He will direct his battery rams against your walls, and his axes will break down your towers. Because of the abundance of his horses, their dust will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen, the wagons, chariots. When he enters your gates, his men enter the city. has been breached with the hooves of his horses. He will trample all your streets, and he will slay your people with the sword. The strong pillars will fall to the ground. Now, it may be in one of the uh, passages that are um, one of the outside passages that I didn't write down here or one of the ones that's coming up. I forget which one it is. But God basically says this to Nebuchadnezzar. You put 13 years into this thing and you didn't get your money's worth out of it. This is actually God. I'm paraphrasing it for you. But this is what God says to him. You didn't get your money's worth out of it. But you uh, you did what I asked you to do. And... Uh, and you invested a lot of time and it cost you a lot of money to be out there for 13 years and to, and to take this thing on. And he took it on according to this, this uh, verse. And we'll, we'll come to it here in the next couple of weeks when we're, when we're going over it. But I'll just give you the, the idea of it now. He said, so just to pay you back for all that you put in there, I'm going to give you Egypt. And so Babylon goes on down and they, uh, they have a battle with Egypt and they win. And that's, uh, they get money off of that. <laughs> And so that's, uh, that's kind of payment for what they didn't get out of, out of this one. So even though they may have gotten a king out of it, they apparently didn't get any of the riches and so forth that were locked up inside of this, this particular 
uh, city. Now, here's what happened in this, and I pondered this for quite a while because I'm seeing something in here that I hadn't quite seen throughout history. It, it occurs in our country as well, but you'll see this in history. The gods of the Phoenicians, we're all very familiar with them. We've talked about these gods in, um, in other parts of the word, in other parts of Ezekiel. He's dealt with it, and this is the god of Baal and Asherah. These are, of course, uh, they, they involve a lot of uh, sexual worship. There's a lot of appeal to the people in, in doing so. And Israel, once they got involved with this worship, kept uh, being pulled into it. The problem came in with this particular type of worship is that it's very priest-dependent. In other words, you can't have a worship service with Baal and Asherah without having priests and priestesses. And they basically run the whole thing. What, I, what, you'll, what you're going to see in here is that Tyre, as they, became, as they ascend in this prominence, they decide, the king decides, he does not like this uh, idea of worshiping gods in which he is not in control. He is dependent on priests and he's dependent on priestess to be able to, uh, the, the people have to keep going to them. And so they want to uh, basically come up with another another god and sell this to the people. And so they come up with the god that is it's called Melkart. Spelled a couple of different ways. One of the ways I have it spelled here is M-E-L-Q-A-R-T. Of course, English doesn't spell it that way, so some places put a K in there. But anyway, that's what it would be. It is the equivalent of Hercules. Now, the thing about Hercules is that Hercules is not a god. He is a descendant of a god. But they took this god, Melkart, and they make him deity. They also take the temple that is inside of Tyre and they dedicate it completely to him. Now, by changing this, this one little change here, and we're no longer mostly worshiping the Baal and the Asherah. Instead, we're worshiping these ones. Uh, they were able to uh, direct a lot of wealth to this particular city because as the popularity of the religion came on, this was the main hub for it. And you could, you could come on in there. Now, one of the things that they had done was they actually created a, an entire um, service a uh, special, special service for this thing. And which, what they would do is they would build this wooden raft and they would take a wooden replica of the god, put it on the raft. They would set the raft on fire and they would set the raft uh, off into the, into the water and the people would be watching it and they would be singing hymns while they watched this raft go off and begin to burn. And this was kind of a tribute to the, uh, to the god, Melkart. And this would set off a, uh, a series of celebrations inside the city. Celebrations that were considered so sacred that only residents of the city could be in the city. No foreigners could be in the city during this celebration. And this would go on for a couple of weeks. I forget exactly how many weeks it would go on, but it would be on for a number of, uh, of weeks. Uh, over, uh, I think it was even over a month. Uh, it was a, a number of times that it was that it was going on. So no no visitors could be in the city during this time. It was just 
the, the, the prominent people of the, the city, the rich, of course, and the powerful, and that were inside this, this very important city. Um, this was basically the king's decision to do this. And it took some time to sell it on to the people, but after a while, the people began to see how much wealth came in and how much uh, uh, this wealth was... The distribution of it was changed. Instead of the distribution of the wealth coming to the to the temple and the priests and the priestesses getting the, the money first and then it having been divvied up and going out, the king was able to uh, arrange it in such a way that the nation, the, 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 the city nation right there, received the money. So basically everybody got rich. So that can make you, you like the religion a lot because it's bringing you money and you're kind of getting some, some money off of it. So it increased the prosperity of the whole city. So more people were on board with this and you were able to let go of some of the things that you had before. Now the priests are no longer the bridge between the, uh, uh, the people and the deities. That's not the priest. It is now the king that is now the bridge between them. And so this puts the king in a more more prestigious position and a place where he liked to be a lot more. Uh, this whole ceremony that they, that they derived for this, as much wealth as it brought into the city, actually had its hand in its demise. The... Um, Why this came about was that after Babylon had left and they had this treaty and whatever capacity they had, had brought it into, once Babylon fell, the, they were going to be set up for this. So Babylon, what was the, what was the year we said for this? Well, there was um, five, 586, somewhere in that neck of the woods, 573. Somewhere in there, that's where the, that siege fell. Uh, the next siege will not take place for about 250 years. So you got about 250 years of them not having any of this, this type of siege that would come about. But it will come to an end. Now we read before in the early verses where it talked about that the, the walls would be broken down, that the uh, place would be a place of fishing for fishing nets, and that it would be, uh, basically the stones would be scraped, the dust would be taken off, all the sort of things that would be happening to it. And that didn't occur under Babylon. When he knocked down the city, he left it. It was still there. All the boulders and all the things from the walls and from all the buildings that they knocked over, they just, they left, they left them there. They knock them down so that you, you can't um, build a defense city again, but uh, it was still there. And so the, some of the comments, and some of the commentaries that are made, some of the critics that, hear, that are here, this, they see this as a prophecy that Babylon would come and do these things, and they see the prophecy as a failure. Because Babylon did not do these things. But they miss a word. There is one word 
that sets this prophecy apart. If Ezekiel does not use this one word the way he's supposed to use this one word, they could very easily look at this prophecy as a failure. Going back to verse 11, just so we get the context, it says, With the hooves of his horses, he will trample all your streets, he will slay your people by the sword, and your strong pillars will fall to the ground. During these few verses, you will see the pronoun he or him used, I believe, is a total of nine times. When we come over to verse 12, it changes. They will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise. Now, he doesn't announce any other change than to say they. When he started this off, he prophesied first off that there would be nations that would come against them. And then he specifically mentions one, which is Nebuchadnezzar. And he speaks about some things that Nebuchadnezzar would do, but then he goes back into the they, the plural. They will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. They will lay your stones, your timber, and your soil in the midst of the water. Very few words are used in this, but this is an extremely difficult prophecy to bring about. What he is calling for here has never been done in the age of warfare, in the age of conquering the city. It has never been done because there's no reason to do it. It has never been done because there's no reason to waste manpower on this. In order to put this much manpower into what this verse is saying, there has to be a reason. And in thousands of years of warfare, when we've had walled cities for all these thousands of years, no one has ever done what Ezekiel is saying is going to be done. Which is why his prophecy is so hard to understand for, for uh, people who don't believe in God. They will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise. Now that's easy enough. You're going to come and take conquer a city. You're going to you're going to take the money. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. That's no problem. People break down houses and break down walls when they attack a city all the time. They will lay your stones, your timber, and your soil in the midst of the water. There's where we have a problem. There is absolutely no reason to move the stones that have built a city there is certainly no reason to throw them in the water. They will lay your stones, your timber, any wood that you've got in the city, and apparently any trees, and your soil. They will take the very dirt underneath the city and throw it in the water. Now, just think about this. When you have an army that is attacking it's a walled city, th- th- this army, when you, when you have, uh, you know, like Nebuchadnezzar, he takes his army. You basically take your army away from all the families. You've got to leave your family behind. You're going to be gone for months, years. 
He, he went on a 13-year campaign and then after that went on down to Egypt. I don't know if he sent anybody home. I don't know if they, they leave and they come back and the kids are all grown up. We don't know exactly, you know, did they, did they swap anybody out? Don't have any of that detail. Don't have any of that information. But we do know that they were gone for a long period of time. You got a wage for being in the army. But that's not why you did it. The reason you did it is when you had victory, you took stuff. And you got to keep some of the plunder. But in order to do it, you got you to gotta defeat them. So they're motivated to defeat them. Why would they be motivated to start carrying stuff? There's no payment in this. We already got all the money out of it. The city's destroyed. There'd be no reason for that. Verse 13, I will put an end to the sound of your songs and the sound of your harp shall be heard no more. And I will make you like the top of a rock and you shall be a place for the spreading of nets and you shall never never be rebuilt. For I, the Lord, have spoken, says the Lord God. So this is where they, the prophecy switches from he to they. Goes back to the nations in verse 3. Now again, there's a 250 year, about a 250 year pause. But in 332 B.C., Alexander the Great has his siege of Tyre. Can you pull up for me the, um, let's first pull up the map of Carthage. This is, this is Carthage. What you're going to have, if I can, um, we are going to come uh, and Alexander is going to Establish a name for himself first off by defeating the Persians in two very significant battles that he does over in this area over here. Once he defeats them, the, the uh, Persians begin to, they head to the east. Basically, they go home and fight another day. Instead of chasing after them and achieving even more of a victory over them, Alexander is concerned because he says they have great port cities over here and they could put their boats over in this area if they put their boats over in this area. He has no defense against that and even though he takes his army over here, they can wreak havoc with all the places where he has won. So he knows that he must take care of the port cities for which the Persians have, uh, have allies with. So this is what he's going to do. So he comes on down. He leaves the pursuit of the Persians. And he comes on down the south of the coast right here and hits the Phoenician cities first. No significant victories at all. He comes over here to Byblos and Byblos says, we, we submit to you. What do you want us to do? And so they, they uh, submitted to them. No battle was needed to be fought. They come on down to Sidon. Sidon does the same thing. We submit to you. We're not going to fight you. We're, we're not strong enough to overcome. You've uh, overcome a much greater army than we could ever muster up. So they, they just surrender. So then they come down to Tyre and Tyre decides to, um, we need to do this at all. Can you pull up our, our map of Tyre? This is where they are. This is where the temple is that we told you about. So what they decided to do was they send an, uh, 
a, a group of people and they leave one of the ports, they have uh, two very natural um, uh, what do you, um, harbors. Probably the two, this is probably the best harbor in the entire area and it's still in use today. And then they also have this one, very natural, of our very natural harbors. A lot of safety was, was in them, but they use these very extensively and they send a group and they come over here to the mainland and they meet Alexander on the mainland. And they say to him, we want to do the same thing that Sidon and so forth did and we just want to submit to you. And, uh, and, and so, um, Alexander says, that's fine, but I want to sacrifice to Marquette because his favorite god that he served was Hercules. That's his, that's his favorite one. If you look at all the things with Alexander, he's got some kind of paraphernalia of Hercules on him. On his head, somewhere, that's, uh, you know, just his favorite one. So he, um, he wanted to come. He said, I want to come and, and sacrifice in, in your, in your, um, temple. This is a deal breaker. Because we are just beginning this new ceremony. Now I say new. I don't know how many, how long it's been going on by this point. It had been going on for a while. Um, but they had been, been doing this and they were just about ready to begin that for which time no foreigners can be in the city and certainly no foreigners can be in the temple. But they didn't trust this man. He's a young king. They didn't trust him. They thought this was a way for him to get inside the city. And they knew what he could do with just a few people. They were not about to have that go on. So they said, no, you cannot do it. If you want, you can use the, the um, uh, temple at the old city. He says, no, the old city won't do. So the... They kind of broke, broke pattern there. And I have a quote to you from Alexander. I saw this in several different places, so I'm pretty sure that this is an accurate quote. Alexander, after being furious, he threatened to lay siege to their city, saying, you indeed, relying on your situation because you live on an island, despise this army of foot soldiers. But I will soon show you that you are on the mainland. Therefore, I want you to know that I will either enter your city or besiege it. In all the thousands of years of this history, it has never been besieged. No one had ever taken this city. It had surrendered or yielded control, but it had never been taken. They thought they could never be taken. Had a little bit of pride going on with, with that. But they, no one had ever done it. Babylon came. 13 years. They couldn't get through. And other nations they had, uh, that had tried before. Assyria could not, uh, could not overcome them. So they were pretty sure that this man without a navy would not be able to, to do anything either. So they, uh, they went back and Alexander set out to, to make good on his promise. Now what had, what had occurred was, and I don't know how much of this he knew ahead of time. He may have known this ahead of time. He may not have known it. 
But over in this area, there was a natural shelf, a sand shelf that was there that only had the water about two meters deep. And so what they did was they went over and they took all the stones, all the timber, all the building blocks for the houses, for the wall, and carried them to this section here to get the, the shortest area there was where this natural sand bridge was at. And they began to throw this stuff into the water. And they built, their goal was to build a peninsula out to the this island island nation. So this works pretty good for for a little while. When they get out to about here, the water starts getting deeper. It gets to about 18 meters. I think it was 18, maybe it's 18 feet, 18 feet, 18 meters. I forget which it was, which it was. Um, There's a lot more than what they initially were, were going after. So it took longer to get material to throw it in. What they were doing was they were cutting down trees. They're throwing trees in. They're taking the, the forest of Lebanon and they're cutting it down and throwing it into the water. They're taking all the stones from the old city and throwing it into the water. Once they made that, they took the dirt and the sand that was all around the city and they threw it into the water. And so they made this, this bridge out. So once they got about right here, uh, they started to come into fire from the walls. This is a wall all around the city. Some places have it as high as 150 feet. There's a lot of places in history who say they can't believe it's quite that, that tall, but they said no matter what, it was pretty tall. It may not have been a, quite 150 feet all the way around, but it was pretty tall. So when they started to fire upon them in order to protect the workers, what he did was he built two giant um, towers. In these towers, he then put leather and he dropped leather down so that the leather would, would block the uh, uh, fiery arrows that would, there, that would come. And they could set up catapults and they had better catapults. Alexander had better catapults than they did. They could fire bigger stuff and they could fire it further than uh, these guys over there in the city kept. So they mount these. Uh, uh, he inherited them from his father. His father, Philip, was able to... He came up with a devised invention on a catapult that was able to fire bigger and better uh, than anything else that was out there. So he put these onto his towers and so he's firing off of them and taking them out so that his workers can keep on going. So we're going slower, but now we're back into to going again. So... There was so much engineering going on inside this battle. I'm trying to remember. I, I kind of went over and over and over to make sure I get this, get this down in here. So what they came up with to defend their city was they took some of their boats here and they launched them out of here and they, they took an old... Um, oh, what kind of a... I forget what type of a boat this was, but it just it hauled stuff. And they filled it with everything they could that was flammable. They put in tar, wood, all sorts of stuff to everything that was flammable. They put a couple of guys on it and uh, there, there was no power on this thing to, 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 to have it go. It was just one big one and they, they had, had it attached with ropes to some of their other boats and they basically sent these boats up and put this thing in between and pulled that wire so that it flung that ship out over from where they were around in here and sent it into 
the uh, the towers that they had. The guys on the boat, as it got closer, lit it on fire and jumped off. The thing is burning. It lands into... They, they weighted down the back end so that the front end would go way up into the air and it would come up on, on shore and, and hit this and start this massive fire. So the towers that he built burned. A lot of the work that they had done on this peninsula, since it was partially wood, partially stone, it burned as well. In fact, I've, I've looked all kinds of stuff to try and get as much detail as I could. As far as I could tell, it burned it all the way back to about there. They put the fire out. Some of the guys got burned. And this is tar and stuff like that too. And I'm not sure what the casualties were, how many they lost. But uh, the, the, the people from Tyre were basically able to get in there, hit this, leave, and had really no casualties. And the whole time while they're trying to put the fire out, these boats that had come out, some from over here, over in this way, and some from over here, attacked them. And while they're trying to put the fire out, they're shooting them. So the casualties were, were high from that too. By the time it was all over and the fire was out, Alexander was discouraged. He gave thought to quitting. But he did not. He kept on going. I found one account, only one, that said that he restarted this and did it at an angle. Everything else seems to indicate that he kept on going on the, the same path. The one who said they changed it at an angle was to help cut down on the, the damage from the waves. Seemed pretty illegitimate, but I only found that one spot. But anyway, they started to remake this. And can you imagine getting all that material again? Finding all that material and doing all this. And you're doing this in the, the, the siege here, out here began in January. We have, uh, we have it down from, um, uh, what was it, November of the year before until August. But the actual part of the, of the building of this, this began in about January. So from January to about August, we have victory. It is amazing. So, he, uh, he continues to build this out and he built the towers again. And he put the towers back out there. And then what he did was he took some of his boats and he, he crafted some of them with towers on the boat. So that I think some of them were actually two boats put together with a tower on it and they could move them, maneuver them in the water. And so they had the towers up over here and they could help defend their, their workers. And then he also devised a battering ram that he put onto a boat. And so the battering ram, what they did was they began to, to assault the wall all the way down in here until they could find a weak spot. So what these folks decided to do to defend against it was they took these big boulders and they threw them down by the base of the wall so that the boulders would tear up the boats. So then Alexander, he gets some cables and ties them around the boulders to yank them Yanked them back. So then the people in Tyre came up with a way to get some people out there to cut the, uh, cut the, cut the, uh, cables. 
And so then Alexander says, fine, we'll use chains. <laughs> so he puts chains onto these to, to continue to drag them, drag them off and uh, continues his assault to uh, work on way. Well, right down in here where you see that arrow is where they finally had a weakness. And they punched a hole in the wall. Now, I had one account that said that uh, I know the person who led the charge into the city, there's only one man who's ever, that I can find, only one man who was said to lead the charge. Alexander. But I have him coming from two different places depending upon which source I was able to, to do. One has him coming and going into the walls here. Whereas I believe I had uh, two other sources who said he actually came in the towers and came on the towers. The towers, once they got close enough, they, they laid their bridges into the walls and they, they ran over and he was the first one over. Um, I think even if you've seen the movie about it, you've seen Alexander coming, coming across the, the bridge. He is that kind of, he's that kind of a general and that's why his men loved him so much is because he didn't just say, you guys take a risk and he stay in the background. He would be out there in the front. So he was the first guy over. And um, there was another one of his uh, leaders who was an, another one of the first ones over and he, he uh, took a spear as soon as he, uh, he uh, went over. He died. Uh, I forget which group he was leading. I, I didn't did have that. But anyway, they move on in here. And once they get in, once they penetrate the city, the city is over. The battle's over very shortly. It does not take very long. 2,000 of the soldiers from the city of Tyre are taken and crucified on the beaches. In fact, the Romans see this as such an incredible way of uh, dealing with your enemies that they adopted it. But Alexander put 2,000 of the soldiers because he was so mad that they made him take it so long to get all this done. And he, he crucified them out there. 38,000. There were about 60,000 people. I think it was 60,000 people, if I remember right. 40 or 60 that left in the city. They had evacuated all the rest of them over to Carthage. Carthage was one of their, um, uh, kind of like a satellite city they had set up uh, over in Africa. And so they, they had sent all the women and children over there. They left about 40 or 60,000. But um, uh, very few of them escaped. A lot of them were sold into slavery. And thousands were killed in the battle itself. The amount of men on the day of the battle, I don't know how many men died total, but on the day of the battle when they made the uh, insurrection into the city, 400 of the of Alexander's men died. Thousands on the other side. was was not even a fair fight on on that side of it. Once they had done this, remember the prophecy? You would think, well, the prophecy has been fulfilled. We took all this stuff over here. We dumped it into the water. They didn't stop there. They were so mad at this place. They scraped everything out of this city, all the walls, and they threw it into the water. They stripped this thing down. 
You don't. You cannot find this island city anymore because this little peninsula that he built out over here, this little bridge, that, land bridge that he built, collected sand over the next hundred years, and more and more sand, and it got to be so big that now there are actually people that live on this this whole bridge area, just like little little shacks and stuff like that that are set up. Um, the city itself here. It's, it's productive. Well, I, we'll get there in a minute. <laughs> Where do we leave off on our... Let me read over those uh, verses of scriptures again just one more time. They will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. They will lay your stones, your timber, and your soil in the midst of the water. And I will make you like the top of a rock. And you shall be a place for the spreading nets. You shall never be rebuilt, for I the Lord. For I the Lord have spoken, says the Lord God. We'll get to the spreading of nuts here in just a minute. Let's just see what happens here with the afterwards. Thus says the Lord God to Tyre, Will the coastlands not shake at the sound of your fall? When the wounded cry, when slaughter is made in the midst of you, then all the princes of the sea will come down from their thrones, lay aside their robes, and take off their embroidered garment garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling. They will sit on the ground. Uh, they will tremble, tremble every moment and be astonished at you. And they will take up lamentation for you and say to you, How you have perished, O one uninhabited by seafaring men, O renowned city, who was strong at sea, seeing her inhabitants, who caused their terror to be on all her inhabitants. Now the coastlands tremble on the day of your fall. Yes, the coastlands by the sea are troubled at your departure. This is probably all those uh, villages and, and uh, smaller uh, groups of people that are around the coastlands, they kind of depended on them for protection. This is all gone. For thus says the Lord God, when I make you a desolate city, like cities that are not inhabited, when I bring the deep upon you and great waters covering you, then I will bring you down with those who descend into the pit to the people of old, and I will make you dwell in the lowest part of the earth in places desolate from antiquity with those who go down to the pit, so that you may never be inhabited and I shall establish glory in the land of the living I will make you a terror and you shall be no more though you are sought for you will never be found again says the Lord God now here's what's interesting is um, once Alexander dies his um, his empire is divided up among his generals the general that gets the area of Phoenicia Rebuilds Tyre. But then it, got, it gets attacked again um, by, the, uh, uh, by the general who wanted to take over his territory. So that was, uh, I forget how many years it was, but uh, it wasn't, wasn't that long. He rebuilt at least part of it. And so there's this, this prophecy, it will not be rebuilt. So how is it that that could be if it was was rebuilt. 
Rome would eventually come in and they would tear down whatever is, is there and they would eventually set up their own, their own bit. Now, here's a, here's a real fun thing. Can you go back to our Carthage map? How many of y'all know the city, or how important Carthage was and how much of a rival city it was with Rome? When, when Alexander comes here and he conquers Tyre, he reduces Tyre to nothing. And all the, everything, every asset they could send heads over here to Carthage. And Carthage becomes a very powerful city. Rome and Carthage are at war with each other. And Rome will eventually defeat Carthage and elevate Tyre. And Tyre will become a, uh, uh, a place of, of prominence again. During the days of Jesus, you remember Jesus, there was a city of Tyre there. And in fact, there was a woman who came out of the Phoenician cities and Jesus ministered to, to her. In fact, there was apparently enough uh, of a, an effect that Jesus had during his time when he was coming through there that Paul, on his third missionary journey, made a stop there for seven days with the Christian community that was there. So, what happens with the city will not be rebuilt. I've seen some photos of this, this area and they have some ruins on them. What I can't tell is where those ruins are from. Not a single picture. And I, I find this, oh, there's that picture again. Let me see if I can get some de- Nobody would give any detail on it. They just show you the picture. I could not find out when it was built. Was it built during Rome? Was Rome the one who, who had done it? Was uh, uh, when they when they took over the city? How about uh, when uh, Alexander's armies b- b- uh, came up? Were they the ones who who uh, put some buildings on there? Because as far as we know, this place was razed, so there should not be any of the ancient city around. So where did these things come from? And those I, I could not find, so I didn't bring any of those pictures over. Right, here's what I did find out. Go back to our picture of uh, uh, Tyre. And what you have is that you have a peninsula that will, and I apologize, I had one that actually had lined out all of the stuff here of where this peninsula is and where, and where it goes, and I couldn't, um, I didn't bring that one on over. But what happened to the island city is that after, uh, after Jesus' day, this place actually becomes completely desolate to where no one is actually inhabiting it. Um, and it's not until, I believe, the 19th century that people began to inhabit it again. But it's not by the, the uh, Phoenician people. It's actually by Arabs that were in the area. And the people who did go in that, in that area, they're completely gone from, from there. But what happened is, either a large chunk or the complete island city itself sank into the sea. And if you go off the coast of where this peninsula that jettisons off of here now, you go off the coast, you will see some of the stone ruins that are still embedded in the ground. You will see them underneath the water. Thing is, it couldn't, those stones could not have been there when this was a port city. 
because it would have been a hazard for ships. It would seem that this entire island nation, island city, sank into the city. And as the Word of God put it here, when I make you a desolate city like cities that are not inhabited, when I bring the deep upon you and great waters cover you. And what happened was the city where Tyre was is covered in water. And no one can inhabit it because it's underwater. There may be some other places that inhabit it now. In fact, there is a city of Tyre, but it's a little bit further up over here than where the old city was, even the mainland city. But it is not on the island city. That is uninhabited because it is underwater, which God put in his prediction. So imagine this, that you not only say that we're going to scrape it clean, we're going to take off all your dirt, throw it into the water. You're going to be a place for fishing, for people's fishing nets to be dried. And I believe it was in the 1600s, there was a historian who was walking on through in this particular area, and he had noticed that the only people that were in the area at all were people who were fishermen. And so the thought was, I wonder how many of those nets got laid out in that area to be, uh, to be uh, drying. Then I will bring you down with those who descend into the pit to the people of old, and I will make you dwell in the lowest part of the earth in places desolate from antiquity. With those who go down to the pit, so that you will never be inhabited, and I shall establish glory in the land of the living. I will make you a terror, and you shall be no more. Though you are sought for, you will never be found again, says the Lord God. As far as I can tell, we can't see any of the buildings, any of the remnants of this city. It is gone. I heard some, uh, in one of those places they used to put, what is the probability that these things would actually come about? And it is so astronomical. But again, it was decades ago I saw this, uh, this book. There are archaeological photos of the ancient site. They, they show some uh, scattered rocks around the area. But in all those areas, there is no city that is built upon them. The fall of Tyre led to the rise of Carthage. And then when Carthage went down, eventually Tyre came back up again as well. Now I put all this here at the end for you. What can God trust you with? Spiritual immaturity, we've all heard that phrase, haven't we? We all know there's spiritual immature, there's spiritual mature ones. This started tossing around in my, in my, uh, my head, so to speak. Uh, not too long ago, uh, a couple weeks ago. And I didn't really know when it was, was for, but it sure seems to fit in here now. So I put it in here with our, with our stuff. And this is the term prophetically immature. Now when I, when this was rattling around on the inside of me, I was kind of going over some of these things and, and I just related it to myself. You know, when, uh, when I was less mature in the, in the things that God would speak to you about. Um, and I would begin to think, oh yeah, God, I could see I, I used to do stuff like that. But this is what came to me on this and see if you ever did anything like this. Prophetically immature, those who take what God says and repeat it with a little alteration to make themselves look good and others look poorly. Have you ever had a word from God? And in that word, you can kind of 
rephrase it a little bit and you just kind of come out of there looking just a little bit better and the people around you not quite as good because when we're immature I can't handle things that tear me down and when we're when we're physically immature don't we tear down other people around us Prophetically mature are those that aren't moved by how others see them. Only that they are true to repeat what God said, even when it makes themselves look poor. That's where we need to get to the place. Where I can be so prophetically mature that God can say things to me and I can repeat it even though it makes me look bad. Even though I may say, boy, you know what? That's speaking to me. But I can still say that. Now here's the thing. God doesn't avoid the immature. Just because I may be prophetically immature and I may rephrase some things that God says to make myself look a little bit better, that doesn't mean that God stopped speaking to me or that God hasn't spoken to me because I altered it a little bit. God gives us room to grow. Aren't you glad for that? Amen. But only those who become mature can be trusted with a word like this one. God had to know that he would repeat whatever it is that he would say, whether he looked good or whether he looked bad. If God told him to say it in a certain way, he's going to say it exactly the way God said it. And he had shown him that. We, we pointed out to you in a number of times when, when he had an opportunity to change it, and he didn't change it. He stayed with it. And if he would have changed one or two words in this, it would have altered the meaning enough that God would have come under criticism for an inaccurate word. But he was able to repeat this as God gave it to him exactly the way God said. We look at some of these prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. These these are are ones who had a maturity about them. They would repeat whatever God said. They didn't care what other people thought about them. They didn't care if it would make them rise in the kingdom or lower them in the kingdom. They didn't care if the king would think highly of them, if it would put them in prison. It didn't matter what it would do for them. All that mattered was God told me to say this and they would say it. Ah. I look back on some of my days and I think, boy, I sure could have said some of those things that God gave me a lot better than I did. But thank God we can use those as learning experiences and we can make ourselves better. God doesn't ever give us words for us to tear down other people, to make other people look poor. He gives us words for us to speak His word to the people that are around us to help them to get them through something to help them avoid mishaps things that might deter them down the road it's our job oh it's our it's so important for us to speak exactly what God says just as God said it to make no apologies for it and Father we thank you for your 
willingness to work with us despite our immaturity and some of the things that we have done with your word, with the words that you have spoken to us. Father, you're growing us. You're helping us. And I thank you for it. What an example we have in Ezekiel. How he just seems to effortlessly rattle off these words that to him must have seemed impossible. How can this be? But he doesn't give in to any of the arguments that he has on the inside of himself as to how these things can be. He just speaks what you gave him to say. And I thank you that he did for what we can learn from it. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.